Hello, everyone. This is the Axiom Podcast. I am your host, Devin, and I'm here with Cameron Earhart. Hi, everyone. Great to be here. This is episode 61, and today we're going to be talking about hiring. This is a very hot topic in our market today. A lot of businesses are, are struggling with finding good hires. Some some people are struggling to find hires in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's a common saying right now that you know if they can fog a mirror, then we should give them a job. But that's not always true. And we're gonna we're gonna dig into that today and dig into some of the some of the good things that we should be on the lookout for for hiring. Some of the things that we probably hopefully are already doing, and and if not, we can implement. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick us off, Cameron. And I think the first thing that you wanted to touch on was just in, in this market, you know, in the, when we have the mentality of, hey, if they can fog a mirror, then, then give them a job. That's not the best hiring practice. Um, what are some other, what are some of the other common habits or common practices when in hiring? Yeah, there's a lot, you know, obviously you can make a lot of mistakes uh, with hiring decisions. And, and we see, you know, a lot of the companies that we join. Um, as uh, you know, bring on as a client, we like to look at over the last three to five years, uh, what has their, been their employee retention rates? And a lot of times, you know, we'll see some high attrition rates, uh, a lot of turnover with employees. And so clearly there's a lot of bad practices out there. And, you know, I don't say that to condemn any company. Uh, a lot of times the CEO or the owner just wasn't taught proper hiring processes. So today, yeah, I definitely want to jump into some very practical uh, solutions, things that you can implement right away to just improve retention over long term and bring A players on a team. But as far as bad practices with hiring, uh, we see a lot. I think the most common one is not having a process at all. So you see this a lot with a very charismatic CEO or owner who just relies solely on their gut instinct, on their, uh, you know, on their intuition. And, and those, you know, I, we'll talk about reach here in a little bit. We bring this up a lot. You know, we have the the counselors and the coaches, which are high on the relational skill. And those are typically the ones who are just going to go with their gut instinct. They meet someone, they like them right away, and the next day they're offering them a job and there wasn't much due diligence. And uh, it turns out two months, three months down the road, they're thinking, what did I do? Like, how did I get this one so wrong? So that's one of the most common ones. But some others just uh, uh, kind of them up and, and definitely want to hear, hear your thoughts as well, Devin, but not involving multiple people. We see that as, uh, you know, another major problem. Again, that, that's kind of going back to relying on just your gut instinct. And, and when you have multiple people at the table who can each give their opinion, you're less likely to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, another one, not having an interview outline. So bringing someone to the table to interview them and, you know, the, the deepest your question goes is, you know, what, what, uh, what success have you had in your current job? Like, you know, like you just don't have anything you're going off of, you're winging it and you don't really get to get into the weeds on some deeper issues that are very relevant, uh, to the, um, you know, the hiring decision. So those are a few that come to mind right away. I don't know if you had any others that were coming to the top of your head, but yeah, no, I, I was thinking of the, you know, I was thinking of the business owner or the, the executive right now who's listening to this and going, yeah, yeah, Cameron, but I have a process. Um, yeah, I may not involve multiple people um, and I don't have an, a standard outline, but I, I, you know, I review the resume and then I call them in for an interview and then I make the decision 
why is that not a process? What, what would you say? Not that it is a process, right? I'm going to, I'll give them that. But why would you, why would you caution against sticking with that process and not seeing that maybe as, as a good process um, in hiring and, and touch on a little bit more of, you know, cause that from that you have the idea of, okay, well, there's the, there's the nuance of, well, if you have a process, but if you're not involved involving multiple people, you're bound to fall short on getting multiple perspective uh, perspectives. You might not, you might be find a lot in common with this individual and you, we know the influence is heavily uh, likability heavily influences people and in, into whether or not we, we hire them and that weighs strongly and how, how much influence they have. But talk about a little bit more about that. Why, why um, maybe in, in contrast to that process, what would be something that's more robust, a more robust process? Yeah. I mean, it, it really depends on the position you're hiring for, right? Let's say your process for hiring for an executive is going to be very different than, um, you know, an entry level uh, internship, for example. I think it's vitally important to have a documented process for each that you're following every time. And that's so things don't slip through the cracks. So you don't make little mistakes. Um, you know, we can, we can really jump into some of the, just the implications of bad hiring decisions. And we'd love to touch on that more in a second, but if you have this process in your head, okay, I collect the resume, I give them a phone call, I bring them in. If they check all those three boxes, we move forward. Listen, if, if you have all the right people in the seats and, and your company's growing and you have A players, you're doing something right. So, you know, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say, Hey, let's, let's revamp everything and tear it apart. But chances are you, you don't, chances are you have about 25% of your team that are a players and the other 75% are these B and C players. And, you know, it's a very difficult conversation when we come into a company and we have to say, Hey, your reception right now is a five out of 10. And we truly think that you need a nine or a 10 out of 10 up there. Um, you know, that's one of the most important positions in the company. It's the, it's the uh, first impression that your customers have. And right now we think you're potentially losing business uh, because of the receptionists that you have up there. And, and so if we don't have a process for making sure that whatever, you know, whatever receptionist we get up there is, is the best one possible is that, you know, nine or 10 out of 10 or, or potentially a seven or eight that might be able to become an eight or, or nine or 10, then chances are we don't have the right people. Um, and so we need to go back and look at that. And so having a more robust process will make sure that people aren't slipping through the cracks during our hiring process. And I, you know, I'm not saying that you have to, uh, you have to take somebody through the weeds for multiple weeks straight, you know, but I am saying it is worth spending three, four, five hours evaluating, maybe even longer, evaluating a person because of the potential benefit or harm that that person may cause to your company. You know, a CEO or a hiring manager who says, like, Cameron, that all sounds great, but I don't have six hours to set aside to interview each person. You know, and I'm talking about the entire process, the time it may take. Right. Right. I I get that, but the question I would just propose is, okay, that's fine. You you want to keep it at thirty minutes? Like you're just gonna you're gonna look at your resume, call them, and interview them for thirty minutes. Think about over the next one, two, three, five years, however long this person's gonna be with you. 
the potential impact that they may have on your business and driving revenue, or if it's an office position, um, you know, just kind of helping out in various ways, it's going to make your company more efficient. When you think about it from that higher level perspective, it makes that six hours or however long we want to talk about, you know, for that entire process seem much more important. Um, so anyways, I'll, I'll stop rambling there, but I think the main point is it's, it's having a process to make sure you're checking all the boxes in every hiring interaction you have. Yeah, that, that's exactly where my mind went, you know, especially it's, it's, we, I guess it's easy to say have a process, but what, what we would kind of clarify more deeply is maybe you do have a current process as we've already discussed, but get that in writing, get that down into a playbook, get that document living in the organization. Because, mm. and the other thing we run into is we run into uh, upper level leadership making hiring decisions for receptionists for entry level positions into our companies. And, and that's something that is, while it's not always unwarranted, uh, especially if, if, you know, the, the resume looked as good as it, you know, as it, we were told it, it was, or what have you, um, it, it allow, it allows you to, especially if you're the CEO, your upper level management, it allows you to, to share that responsibility. Um, so that one person, like you said, you know, kind of the second bullet point, you know, that we, we made was not having one person understand what the process is for hiring and how to get good hires, because maybe, maybe that's the case. Maybe we have, uh, you know, a business owner operator who has a good track record in hiring, but they don't have a well-defined process. We're only going, we're going to be capped in the, our ability to add staff, good staff, if we don't have what is in you know, that owner operator's head or that executive's head distributed to the team. So mm -hmm. even if you have a process mentally and it's not written down and, and everybody who makes hiring decisions or has hiring responsibility doesn't have that written down, that's the importance of having a process. It yeah. allows multiple people to get involved. Everybody knows what stage in it you're in. And the other thing too is it allows for tweaks, as you mentioned, for whether you're hiring for an entry-level position, a mid-level manager position, or even a C-suite position. You know, for example, um, one of the things that I, baffles me still to this day is we businesses who make hiring decisions on a call rep or a receptionist without conducting a phone interview first. <laughs> it's a really, really quick way to, you don't have to meet them. And that's what they're going to be doing for 75% of their job is answering phones. Right. It's, it would behoove us to pick up the phone and, and call that person at least if the, you know, for the first kind of touch point to, and have a conversation with them and see how they respond, you know, and make that part of the process before, for your receptionists or for your CSRs who are going to be fielding in, inbound calls or having to make outbound calls to customers for, for whatever reason uh, might be. So, so I think that's, that's kind of just a, what, what went through my mind is having a process is once you start outlining it, outlining it and you document it, then you can make tweaks for various positions in your organization. Um, let's let's jump into some, you know, so so have a process, and, and that process should eliminate some of the the common practices, the common bad habits that we get into. Which is, man, I really like this person. Um, they, you know, I had a great conversation with them. They definitely, you know, on on, on paper they look good. Let's hire them, and, and we jump into a bad decision. Uh, what are some of the implications and results of a bad hiring decision? 
Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind is the cost of turnover. Uh, it, and we don't, we don't always consider that. Um, but when we bring on a new employee and we spend a lot of time investing in that employee, uh, training that employee, getting them up and running, getting them acquainted with all the other employees, you know, teaching them our systems, our processes, uh, trying to bring them into our culture, we're investing time, money, and energy. And so if we have a high turnover rate, every time we lose an employee, we're, we're basically letting go of all that. Where all of that just goes in the trash, it's all wasted because nothing is becoming of that. We we have no uh, return on that investment from the employee. I mean, assuming they didn't work out, you know, in a short time frame. But yeah. Um, but yeah. So the the point is, like, you know, if we have a high um, turnover rate, then we're we're actually losing a, a lot of money and a lot of time uh, that we could potentially be saving. So. That's the, the first thing that comes to mind. The second one I would say is just the hindrance to moving our culture forward, which I'd love to hear, you know, more of your thoughts. But I just uh, I, I know, a, you know, a couple of companies that we've worked with that have those high turnover rates. When we go in and we speak with the employees, it's and we ask them, what are the main issues that you're seeing? This company? It's one of the first things that they mention. Um, yeah, we have a you know, we have a problem here. If you don't if you don't make it past your six month mark, like then uh you know or or if you if you don't uh you don't get to that six month mark then you're you're basically out like that's that's the hump right if you get past that hump then then you'll stay here but we have a lot of employees that don't and so we see that cause a a major um kind of backpedal in advancing or trying to advance the culture yeah and not and definitely not just the culture i think i the but also just the the level of uh, productivity from our employees the, and, and the really the, the hindrance of growth, right? So mm -hmm. that, that to me is, is absolutely huge when it comes to making bad hiring decisions. You know, we, we've seen it a number of times where we hire an individual and, you know, maybe they, they, they I was thinking of a particular client where they, they were really focused on getting marketing off the ground and they wanted an individual who was going to be uh, at the trade trade shows, they wanted that individual who's going to be working with the industry um, chambers, if you will, or the industry organizations, and building those relationships, um, simultaneously driving internal, uh, I guess, collaboration and synergy across different departments. And it, it became pretty apparent pretty quickly that this individual, while while they were absolutely tenacious in terms of tracking metrics and pushing change and, and driving the initiative was not very strong on the relational side. Yeah. And people, people now this is, this was a case where people responded their their individuals and the employees responded um, just so that this individual would get off their back. <laughs> but in, in the long run, the, the position didn't end up working out. Um, there was no, no lasting initiative and no lasting push and lasting change. Uh, and now, you know, we're in a situation with them where thankfully we're kind of restarting, wipe the slate clean and continuing to push with, with a new position that we've taken some time hiring. Uh, but it, it was, it could have been disastrous. You know, it, yeah. it could have involved a lot of pushback from the techs. And if that happens over and over again in an organization and not just with hiring, and I don't want to go down the rabbit trail and talk about just, 
change and initiatives in general, but particularly with hiring, if we have constant turnover and constant attrition in our hiring or with our people, then there's very little uh, security for any of anybody in our organization, you know, to say, this is going, this is going to last, we can make progress, we can build energy and momentum towards this particular um, fixing the issues or addressing problems here, because we're, we have a solid foundation, we have a solid team around us. If the team's always changing, then it's very hard to build any momentum towards, towards a, towards a goal. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely right. It's very hard to build the, the, culture that you want um, to build a team based around a set of core values because you know as that's constantly changing you're constantly have to uh, try to teach people uh, what it means to be a part of the company and and so uh, so yeah I mean there's just there's so many implications I mean it's such a important discussion that we're having especially during times like this where the labor market I mean truly is so thin and and you do have to make some tough decisions. And so just getting back for a second to the importance of having that hiring process, we were working with one company recently that they, they didn't have a hiring process whatsoever. I mean, <laughs> their hiring process was call the person, have them come in. If they like them, offer them a job. And, and, and we were seeing high turnover rates. And so we implemented a new process. It was for, you know, kind of account managers, this, this mid level position and the process was seven steps and it was okay collect the resume is the first step um, after that we wanted to do a phone interview after the phone interview we want to bring them in and we want to make sure that these three people are all getting to interview the person um, with them we, we like to have the three people do the interview at the same time because we we had a set list of interview questions and so we wanted those three people to kind of gauge the applicant's response as um, he or she went through those questions. Um, and then after that, we, we wanted the applicants to take personality assessments. We wanted to see what kind of personality they had. Um, and we'll, we'll jump more into you know, some of this stuff in a second. But um, after that, it was the three of them meeting, going over everything they had discussed, you know, and then making a decision collectively. And they decided that they needed three yeses in order to move forward with the applicant. So since implementing that new process, so far, they've had a 100% success rate, you know, time will tell. But um, before then, you know, we were seeing 50% turnover. And now we, you know, we haven't seen any since implementing this new process. So it, it's something just as simple as that as, as making sure that, you know, you have accountability in your hiring decision. And so um, so, yeah, I mean, there's various ways you can you know, kind of design your hiring process. And, and like we mentioned earlier, it is relative to the uh, position, but having one in place documented, like you were mentioning, is just utterly important. And it's also so important to make sure you make no exceptions. And <laughs> that's a, it's an easy temptation, right? Like you get someone in the door, like, man, this, this lady is awesome. She is so great. Like, let's get step three, four, and five because, because she made such a good impression on us. Let's just go ahead and hire her. And that's where we begin to see, you know, mistakes happen again. So. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. That actually reminded me of a case study I ran across uh, where an employer hired a sales professional had a fantastic resume, submitted his W-2s to the organization to prove his sales record. And they, they were so blown away by his, his numbers and his ability, his industry expertise, that they didn't go through the whole sales process. And 
the the employee this was a situation where it didn't blow up in the short term uh, but this this professional in the case study the sales professional ended up dominating the the team and ended up holding 50% of the relationships in the business so 50% of the revenue were relationships that this individual brought into the organization that that were were driving the growth of this company um, but lo and behold, because they didn't have a process, and we are going to get into this, there was there was an or because they skipped the process, they weren't able to really discern how much of a cultural fit this this individual was. And so the case study ends with this individual, you know, kind of pushing back to some of the culture, and end up ending up leaving the company and taking fifty percent of the revenue with him. Because 50% of the relationships are, are ones that he had built and he'd established. Um, there, you know, the, the company didn't have non-competes and other things like that uh, as well, which is another, you know, different subject. It's a different podcast. Uh, different podcast. How to do, how to do those well and are they are they necessary? Are they worth it? But uh, yeah, I think in, in 50% of the revenue just dried up overnight, mm. and and that's uh, that's something that could have been saved had they not gotten. Uh, gun, uh, trigger happy and, and skipped part, part of the process yeah hi this is Joey Brandon I want to take a quick time out just to tell you a little bit more about Axiom and the work that we do we work with closely held businesses on strategic growth what that means is that we come alongside the business owners we help them get clear about where their business is going and then we engage their leadership team to build plans for growth and then execute those plans. If you're a business owner and you're trying to grow or you're looking for future growth, or maybe you're just trying to manage the current growth that you have and you're looking for some help, you want somebody to come alongside you, to give you the tools, to show you what accountability looks like, to build the skill set of your team so that you can step away from the business while it continues to grow, give us a call. You can find more information at axiomstrategic.com. So we we've talked a lot about the process. We want we want anybody listening to this podcast. If you don't have one, we we'd want to we we hope that you come away with at least some uh, framework of of how to start building a process. So let's talk a little bit more about that, Cameron. What are some of the what are some of the sample um, kind of components of a hiring process, and how how would you encourage a, an executive or an owner or even an HR professional listening to this podcast, uh, how, how to how to start building a process. Yeah. So, you know, like we mentioned earlier, think about it for the position you're hiring. So let's, you know, let's, let's nail, nail it down. So let's say it is a mid-manager position and maybe there is, uh, you know, there's a CEO that they're going to be act, uh, regularly interacting with. Uh, there's also, you know, maybe the, we'll just call it the CMO. Um, and then they're also going to have a, uh, you know, maybe someone who's who's kind of beside them on the org chart that they're regularly going to be interacting with as well. But anyways, there's these three main people that is going to be working with them, um, just helping lead them, helping train them, coach them, et cetera. So we want to make sure we get all three of those people involved in the hiring decision. And at some point in the process, each one of them getting to interact with the person. So when we been, begin to construct a hiring process, we want to take that in consideration. And so, I, I mean, 
personally, I think the, the first step is always collect the resume. Just get the, get the resume and let's just look it over. Let's just make sure that things line up. You know, it, it, it looks like someone that we would want to hire on paper. You can only see so much about a person on paper. Um, but at that point, I mean, I, I personally, like, let's, let's go have, go ahead and have a phone interview. You mentioned this earlier, like if someone's terrible on the phone and, it, and it's going to be, you know, someone who's regularly interacting with people, they might not be the best hire. So let's just, let's just see how they are on the phone before we even bring them in. And that could end up saving us a lot of time and saving them, you know, a lot of time as well. And so, uh, so that's an easy step. And then following that, you know, so far the resume looks good. They did great on the phone interview. Let's go ahead and get them in and let's, uh, let's have an in-person interview with them. Unless it's a fully remote company, you always need to interview them in person. Um, you know, if you're going to be interacting with them in person, if they're going to be in the office with you, that has to be part of the process. And I know these seem like very simple, basic things, but it's crazy how many companies don't fully follow these guidelines. And so that's the reason I'm just kind of reiterating them, but you, you get the person in. Go ahead. Can we, pa- can we pause there for a second? Because I, you know, one of the things that we hear all the time is we just can't get them to come in for the interview. You know, and and I guess I, the, you know the curious thing that I would I would I would hope you know like to talk about if we can is, you know, especially with your your experience and your you know with hiring at uh, exercise.com, you know, what are some things that we can do in order to to soft? You know, I, I look at hiring as like kind of a sales process in a way. You know, we are definitely looking for an employee, but there's also, yeah. we, we are trying to, you know, in today's market, we have to sell the company and the company has to be one worth someone coming to work for. Like people aren't, just, I think that's where perhaps some of the younger generations have challenged companies is they don't, they don't, we're not just interested in a paycheck anymore. Um, we can get it from the government. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but um, you get a point. Uh, no. So, um, but what are some of the things that a company can do if they're maybe need to refine their in-person interviews so that you know bolster them up so that they can at least get that in-person interview happening? Yeah, it's all about the opportunity, and you want to look for like a players are are going to see the opportunity and they're going to be motivated and, and passionate about pursuing it. So you shouldn't have to convince someone to come in. If you find that's the case, they're probably not a good fit. If you get to the point where you you uh, invite them for an in-person interview and, and they agree to it and they just don't show up um, and they don't have a valid excuse why they didn't show up, like they're not a fit, right? So at the same time, I, I completely understand in this labor market, we kind of have to compete for good talent. And so that puts the pressure on us to make sure and relay to each candidate the opportunity that is at hand. And, you know, I think I'll, I'll, you'll probably agree with me with this, that show you you demonstrate that by um, explaining to them what your vision is for the company, explaining to them what core values the company is built on, um, you know, why it is an exciting opportunity what your culture is like at that company, what what type of opportunity they're joining in. And and then alongside that, what is their future? So are they just going to be in this role for the next 10 years? Or do you have a vision for this person of their growth within the company? You know, every, or I, should, I shouldn't say every person, but every A player that is looking for a role 
are going to be wondering those things. What does this hiring manager envision for my future at this company? Um, and then, you know, how well are they going to communicate with me? You know, communication is such an important part of employee satisfaction. And so we can demonstrate that during the hiring process. So, I mean, those are just a few things, but yeah, we definitely have to have to show them that this is worth coming in for because we have an incredible opportunity here and we want to make sure we get the right person in for it. Yeah. And it reiterates too the importance of that phone call. You know, it, it's, it's such a low barrier to entry um, that we set. If they can make a phone call, then hopefully that's a good indicator that the, the level of commitment that they have to make on the front end for a phone call it's it's a little bit more for them after the phone call if we see it as a good fit for them to come in for the in-person interview it's it's a little bit more of a commitment but they've already they've already had some sunk costs into the interview and hiring process right so if they yeah. don't answer the phone call if we don't have a phone call as a first step then or a phone interview as a first step then that should eliminate some of the dangers we run into of people canceling interviews which cause all sorts of scheduling kerfuffle right. on the back end right and and we we're, we're sympathetic to that. It, but it is a part of the game and, and we, we do have to just adapt sometimes and maybe change the process to eliminate how many no-shows we, we have for interviews. But mm -hmm. so, so we have, you know, start the process with a phone call. Next, it's an in-person interview with, you know, three individuals, you'd say, who are going to be working closely with that individual or kind of semi-closely with any individual what what other kind of hallmarks would be in the process? Yeah, I mentioned this earlier, but have an interview outline. Don't try to wing the questions. And, you know, when we think about uh, interviewing this person, what are we trying to discover? What are we trying to find out? I, I like to think about it in three different buckets. And I don't know if this is original to me. I don't think I've heard it somewhere, but I'm sure somebody's thought of it before me. Um, not claiming that this is genius or anything, but the first bucket is just values and culture. So are they uh, a values fit to the organization? And in other words, are the same values that we hold true to, that we hold each other accountable for at this organization? Does this person identify with those, agree with those, and, and want to be held accountable to those as well? Uh, the second bucket would be just competency. So do they have the uh, necessary intelligence level to um, uh, have a high efficiency at their work? Do they have the drive, the motivation, the passion that's needed for this position? The third one would just be the experience. Um, so this isn't relevant in every position, you know, an entry level position, we might not need the experience bucket, but in a management position, we may uh, very much need someone who has management experience. And so when you break it down into those three buckets, that can help you craft your questions that you want to ask to see if they're a fit for each bucket. And, and I mean, I, I think if you get a check mark, a big check mark in all three of those buckets, chances are you have an A player that's sitting there in front of you. Um, but, you know, and I, I, I know you want to talk more about this. That first bucket is by far the most important. And so we need to figure out, first and foremost, are they – uh, fit or not in our values and culture bucket. Yeah, and we've we've intentionally stayed away from the subject of recruiting in this podcast, but I, I do want to kind of bring it in for subtle, like just a little bit here in terms of that values and culture piece bucket in the, in a, the interview process and the hiring process, and and that relates to recruiting. And just because you know we have a client right now, top of mind, that 
that is, I guess, based on the just the trajectory of the market in general, there's countless research that points to the fact that skilled labor is going to continue to increase in demand as yep. we as we go into the future, right? And so skilled labor is very hard to come by, uh, and not just not just skilled labor that can fog a mirror, um, but skilled labor that that is in line with company values that that is quality talent, right? Um, so, so this client, you know, just basic, great idea. It's, it's not new, but it's something that every, every business should do is make word of mouth referrals, make word of mouth hiring a, a practice in your organization. Yeah. You know, get people in your organization to recommend uh, people to work for you. Or, or if they know anybody, hey, tell them to submit a re- their resume and, and hire. And that yeah. goes back to this first bucket because when we are personally vested, when our people are personally vested in finding individuals that they get along with, if they're in, granted, if they're in line with our culture, there's that much higher of a possibility that they're going to be a good fit in that first bucket. Yeah. Um, and and that's that was so important in this conversation because they aren't just looking, they're not they're getting to the point now where they're not looking for experience, right? Which is kind of, it, it's hopefully not unique to them. I, if it is, it's, it's definitely a, a right time for that because they're not playing the short game. They are hoping for some immediate returns, but they're planning for that proact. They're planning. Oh, sorry. Can't speak right now. They're proactive and they're willing to take green, empl- green, em- green employees, green technicians, because yeah. they know that if their values fit and they're a culture fit, they can teach them. Yeah. Right. And that's that it, you can't have, you can skimp on the experience side if they're a good values fit, if they're teachable. Um, you know, I think of, I think of uh, a players that book, um, <laughs> Patrick Lencioni. I cannot remember the title of it right now. The ideal team player. Right. And his, his kind of three hallmark values are hungry, humble, smart. Yeah. Right. Are they hungry? Are they humble? Do they have, do they have the ability to admit when they're wrong? Um, do they want to learn? Are they hungry? Are they smart? Do they get along with people? Are they relational? Um, yeah. So, so yeah, the that kind of goes back to the values bucket and, and even uh, the point that is made in many many other books. Patrick Lencioni is one of them. But you, we can teach people. Um, I'll, I think of another book, Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. He has the practice of hiring 51 percenters. Uh, the 51% rule. And the way that he explains in the book, I I won't read an excerpt here, but the way that he explains it in the book is if I'm hiring somebody, 51% of their test is, are they a values fit? Do they fit in with our, do they fit in with our culture? You know, and here's a guy who's a restaurateur who's, you know, extremely successful. We have the the luxury of having a Shake Shack here in town uh, in Sarasota. But here, if you don't have any culture fit, or you don't fit in all all the ways within our his culture, you don't you don't get 51% of the score. And the other 49 is the technical competency. So you can be a great server, you can have all of the competency, you can have the best resume in terms of dining experience, guest guest services, hospitality experience, but and you can score 100% in Danny Meyer's book. But if you're not a values fit, you don't fit in with their culture, you don't pass. So we we understand that that values are extremely important, getting questions, you know, understanding the values bucket and making sure they're a good fit. Uh, cannot stress the importance of that enough. Um, and hopefully you have, you know, 
all of our clients, they have core values. They have three or four uh, kind of indicators of how they expect people to operate and, and have relationships and, and act and conduct themselves in their, in their businesses. Um, and the values themselves are just placeholders for the definitions that kind of define how we relate with other people. One of the things that I think is really one of the, I've heard this may be anecdotal. Um, I certainly don't have the research to, to back it up, but it's kind of, it's kind of the, the old wives tale that people can fake it for 16 hours. So, right. So this gets at, to get to your point. If we have multiple people in an interview process, just kind of from earlier, there's, there's more opportunity for us to approach conversation or, or ask questions from different angles, but we can't do that if we don't have good questions. So let's, let's jump there and talk about some of the types of interview questions um, that we should ask and types of interview questions that we shouldn't ask. And maybe kind of to tie that into our values, how do we ask values questions? Um, and, and how do, how do we ask values questions uh, in our interviews and, and how do we start getting at that? Yeah, I, I think a great way to do that is to just ask the person, what are some values that you hold true to, that you hold yourself accountable to? And, and I, I found a lot of times they'll, they'll be like, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Or can you explain that further? Like, it's not always something that just clicks right away. But after you explain like, okay, well, these are our company's core values. Um, and so, you know, we're just curious, do you have core values similar to that, that you hold yourself true to? And you begin to get a sense um, of, and, you know, we can even ask them, like, can you define that for us? You said, you know, you said uh, hardworking, like, what does that mean to you? What does hardworking mean to you? And so you begin to get a sense of, does this person truly have some, uh, some qualities or some values that, that they are trying to hold themselves true to? And then after that, Asking tough questions uh, can can really help you find out if the person holds to the same values that your company does. And and what I mean by that is, I don't like asking hypothetical questions. Uh, I typically never ask a hypothetical question during an interview. A, an example of a hypo hypothetical question would be, you know, let's say you're sitting at your desk one day and a new customer walks in and nobody's at the front desk to help them, and you realize, you know, like those those type of questions are pointless in my eyes because they're always gonna say what you want to hear they're always going to give the best answer possible i would run up front and i would greet them with a smile on my face and so it's just yeah i don't i don't really find much value in those questions i prefer questions uh if you're going to ask those type of questions based on give me an example of a time in your past when you were at your job and xyz happened how did you handle that and then they actually have to think back and try to remember a time where that situation happened and explain what they did now, I understand that they could always lie or they could always, you know, just come up with the uh, best story that comes to their mind. But you're more than likely going to hear, um, you know, stories from their past that actually happen and be able to get a better sense of how they handle different situations. Other types of tough questions are just kind of putting it out there. Tell me one issue or one problem you have with your current manager. What is one thing that they don't do really well? It's a really hard question to answer, but if we find the person just start like, oh, one thing, I could tell you 20 things, like, you know, start talking <laughs> about how terrible, then we're like, oh, okay, like, thumbs up, and they might very well have a terrible manager. However, like, we want humble employees that have an extreme ownership mentality, and right. so the, the type of answer we prefer to hear is, 
you know what? Yeah, my, my direct manager at times, I feel like he or she doesn't give me clear expectations. Um, but, you know, if I'm, if I'm really evaluating that, I, I know I could probably do a better job of going to him and letting him know that I need that. And so when we hear that type of answer, that's a, that's a different you know, type of response. That's somebody who has the humility. That's somebody who has the extreme ownership mentality that we're looking for. Um, you know, we had an a interviewee that we were speaking with recently, and we asked him that question. And he said, uh, he said, you know, my direct manager doesn't lay down the hammer when he needs to. And uh, so we're like, okay, what do you mean by that? Like, can you elaborate? He's like, well, you know, I, I have four or five other employees that I'm working with and coworkers, and they don't pull their weight. Like they're not doing near as much as me. I'm the only one doing what I'm supposed to. They're all slacking off and, you know, doing X, Y, Z. And my manager just lets them get away with it. And so it just like, I, I feel isolated. Like I don't get along with anybody on the team because of that. And he just started going and going and going. And quickly we realized like, wow, like this, okay, this person might be telling the complete truth. Like yes, there, right. is, <laughs> there is a chance of that, but there's also a major yellow, maybe red flag that this person doesn't get along with anybody they work with. And they just let us know that through answering this question. So, you know, those are some examples of some more difficult questions you can ask to figure out do they hold the same values as you. Hi, this is Devin Dash at Axiom Strategic. And we just want to take a moment to, to break in our episode. And first of all, just thank you for listening. And the second thing we want to inform you of is a special series that we're going to be doing where we want to answer your burning questions. If you're a business owner or you're a professional working for a business and you have a burning question um, that we can put our minds to and, and maybe help you, you know, think strategically about, do not hesitate to, to reach out to us. We're going to be putting together a string of episodes where we're going to be answering your questions. You can email us your questions at podcast at axiomstrategic.com or you can visit our website axiomstrategic.com, visit our podcast page, and there will be a form that you can fill out and get us your questions that way. I want to thank you again for listening. And now back to the episode. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. Um, one of the one of the things I I know that is also important is you know kind of gets at understanding uh, kind of the individual and the values piece is helpful tools help not just to understand individual kind of personality um, but also some some competency so what are some of those tools that you use I know we use reach we use the reach yep. uh, profile and and just to clarify the reach profile does have additional tools I, you know I think this is a disclaimer worth sharing. We don't yeah. use reach profile in making hiring decisions. The tool itself that we use is helpful at getting us to understand how we can ask good questions and how we can communicate effectively with uh, the person we're interviewing. It also gives us some key indicators about their personality. So it might be how open are they? Are they more social or independent? Are they more competitive or contented? And those are, those are not, we, we don't use rules of thumb and say, okay, if they're competitive, they're no goes. Right? right, but we do use those in relationship to their to their position to say, you know, we're hiring this person to work on. Let's just use the most kind of common um, whipping child, whipping boy is is the accounting department, right? We're hiring this person to do receivables, or we're hiring this person to to uh, issue invoices, or we're hiring this individual to do some back office items. It doesn't involve a whole lot of relationships and working with other individuals 
and yeah. we, we we pull their reach profile and we realize that they are a social social person in terms of relating they're high on the, the relation relational scale well that doesn't mean we're not going to hire them for that position right. but it it might be a strong indicator along with other kind of personality markers that if we have other employees peers that they're going to be working on alongside who are not relational and who really like to go head down on a task that it might not be the best fit for them to be in a room where they're going to be the one wanting to talk to other other individuals and possibly making them less productive um so so that's why like we we like the reach tool they do you know we we have the option to to do what they call um job job placement tests of the with the reach profile and we look at you know 5000 take a 5000 study sample um but typically those are those cost extra and we don't you know we don't use that as a tool but what other tools babbling now what yeah. other tools do you recommend for that yeah i mean personality tests are great like you said there's plenty of competency tests out there which can be very cheap um you know the wonderlick is an example of one where it really it, this is what the nfl uses when they're when they're gauging uh incoming draft picks it's a it's a good way of just trying to figure out like okay does this person have problem solving intelligence um and so you know there's some different ones like that we could also talk about calling their professional references i i'm not in the boat of you need to call references for every single person uh, i think for some positions it, it may be necessary like a kind of tech or field worker positions I, I think it's a good practice to call a previous manager um, i i don't see really any value in speaking with anyone other than their um, direct manager from a previous job. And typically I, I keep those conversations very short. The main question that I'm asking is, uh, you know, how, how they do while they were there, obviously, like how was your relationship with them? Why'd they leave and, or why are they no longer there? But the most important question is if you had the ability, would you hire them back uh, today? And if they hesitate or if they say, uh, you know, or uh, maybe if, you know, then that's a no. Like for me, it's like, wow, if their direct manager like would not hire them back, that's not a good sign. That's, a, that's definitely a, a yellow flag. But if their immediate response is, oh, I'd take him or her back in a heartbeat, then that's a really good sign to me. Um, so those are just some quick kind of practical tools and resources that you can use for further evaluating candidates, you know, alongside the interviewing, um, the, you know, resume reviewing, different things like that. And great stuff, great stuff. I feel like we could talk about this all day, um, but I think we're at the end of our time here, and we we just want to do a quick recap here and and say, uh, you know, just if you're listening to this and you have a process, but it's not written down, write it down. Uh, the the cost of of bad hiring decisions, and you know this. If you're listening and you intuitively you know it's it's really hard when we have to continually over and over and over look for the same position and rehire for the same position. Uh, multiple times it, it becomes a rat race that we just don't want to run anymore um, so start of hopefully this is helpful in, in helping you evaluate maybe where you can tweak and, and adjust your process so that you can hire those quality players um, and, and you know be on the lookout for for those kind of key markers i think it's a great idea to call their previous employer and and definitely their direct manager we use a career history form uh, that we recommend be a all application applicants fill out um, that just kind of gives us, you know, we give it to our clients. We didn't, 
can't remember where we stole it from, but we'll put the credibility. We'll, we'll give credit where credit is due in the show notes. Uh, but it, it's essentially a tool that gives the prospective employer the ability to call those resources and not just get their name and the phone number, but it, it makes sure that the individual who's filling out the career history form goes to them and says, hey, I need you to apply. I need you to, to I need you to let them talk to you, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that the reason is for that is not because not because we don't we don't just want their information. We want them to try to set up that call because A, it's gonna it's gonna eliminate their their you know, the possibility that they say to a friend, Hey, will you will you uh will you pretend to be my old boss? Right. Because you can run into that situation. They have to set up the interview. They have to set up the, you know, the conversation. So uh, hopefully, hopefully all these tools are, are super helpful for you. We, we thank you for the time today. And as always, we thank you for listening to the Axiom Podcast. And we'll talk to you guys soon. All right. Welcome to the Axiom Podcast after show. I'm so thankful that you are joining us uh, for this extended time. Uh, normally, we, we, we kind of talk about topics that came up in the podcast that weren't directly related, but maybe we had a rabbit trail we wanted to go down because we thought it would be interesting. Uh, today, we are going to continue the conversation with really just some practical questions, uh, some case study questions that have come out of our working with clients uh, that we want to kind of give our general answers to uh, and hopefully help you in a situation similar in the future, um, or right now, if you're going through that. So Cameron, uh, why don't you kick us off with the first question? Yeah, first question, should we rely more on our gut instinct or a methodical process in our hiring decisions? Yes, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, no, I, I think that the first and foremost, you know, is the kind of the common knowledge now. Daniel Kahneman wrote the book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and proved the point to everybody in the world that we don't make rational decisions as much as we'd love to, as much as we think we're rational creatures, like we don't make rational decisions. We can, right. we can include logic in our decision-making, but more often than not, we are working against our, bi our own, we're with our own biases and we're hopefully making, we're, we're probably making a decision, uh, rationalizing the decision based on those biases rather than the actual facts, um, mm -hmm. which, if that's the way the world operates, then many, many people have made, you know, gotten very successful in that way, right? We make decisions every day and we're, we're constantly battling back and forth to, between the two. I think that the real kind of answer to this question, the reason I say yes, is because you should be able to work with both. Mm -hmm. You should have the methodical process. You should have the hiring process to make decisions. Um, and, and you are going to have situations where, your gut, uh, I would say for a business owner who has really strong values, he, your gut is going to tell you maybe something just, I don't know, something they said, something, um, just the way that they're, maybe you're getting a vibe that they're noncommittal, they're a little bit fickle, um, and you're, you're not just quite, you're not quite sure. If they've gone through the methodical process and you're then working in your gut instinct, then, and, and then it's a good decision, I think. Mm -hmm. So rely more on our gut instinct or methodical process. I would say do the do the best to rely on the process, and then your if your gut is telling you no, still at the end of that process, then you know 
that don't not listen to your gut, right? I think right. Everybody, everybody knows like you should listen to your convictions. You should, and if you're wrong, then okay, we, we we missed out on a unicorn. But at the end of the day, better to be comfortable and be able to move full for, force and with momentum going forward, confident that you made a good decision or that you made you know a right decision, as opposed to moving forward with that kind of ambiguous or ambivalent feeling of that I make the right decision. Right. Yeah. Make the gut instinct a checkbox in your process. <laughs> so you're yeah. still following a process, but they have to check that box in order to get through and, and be hired. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Cameron. Um, next question. Let's, let's talk about when you desperately need to fill a seat, but you don't have the best options to choose from. What would you, what would yeah. you recommend in that situation? <laughs> yeah, it's a fun one. Uh, this is, probably the toughest situation you know we could think of you have a position in your company a seat that desperately needs to be filled you're falling behind because of it maybe other people are being affected because of it they're drowning um they're having to kind of pick up the slack of this missing position and you've been sourcing you've been working with recruiters you've been trying to get people in the door but the labor market is just terrible and we've had four people apply and all four people were just you know B, C, D players, and not one A player has interviewed, it, you know, it's a tough question. Do we go ahead and hire that C player, get them in the seat, just to hopefully stop the bleeding for a little bit, knowing that they, they're probably not a good long-term fit, or do we continue holding out for God knows how long, you know, indefinitely to try to get an A player and potentially you know, really set ourselves back in other ways. Like that is an extremely tough uh, position to be in. My advice would be, and this is, uh, you know, this is, this is coming from just experience of working with companies that have faced this situation is the consequences of getting the wrong person in that seat can actually be more detrimental to the company than that seat not being filled. Now, I'll put a caveat. If it's a if it's a kind of entry level or maybe data uh, data entry processing type of position where it's like, okay, we just we need somebody in this seat to pick up the work. Um, there's some other options. We can look at temp agencies and we can get we can get a temp person in there who we know they're here temporarily while we look for that A player. They're going to pick up the slack for us and we may have to pay a little bit more, um, but we're not taking on the liability of that person. They understand it's a temp position. Uh, we don't have to necessarily worry about the impact they're going to have on our culture, um, different things like that. So there are solutions, but in this specific situation, I think it is better if you can find a way to wait on that A player rather than make a bad hiring decision just to fill a seat. Would you, would you add anything to that, Devin? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think anytime you make a decision, um, obviously we're, we're for, again, we just said in the last one, like we're forced to make tough decisions every day. Um, and, and, and clients are like, as people we are, uh, this is, this is especially true for business owners who aren't just making decisions to support their own livelihood, their families, but their employees too, and their employees' families. Right. So you definitely don't want to bring somebody in. I agree. You don't want to bring somebody in just to fill the seat, right? You're like never, never hold a mirror in front of them. And I think we talked about this in the main show yeah. and, and check, Oh, they, they fogged it. Okay. Hire them. Like that is, that is kind of the last, I would say that's never an option. 
Um, temp, I love temp agency uh, idea. I, I think that's great. I think it certainly is you enter in with the mindset that this is not permanent. We are going to still find somebody who fits our culture, fits our values and can fill the role. Um, I would say any constraints that you can, can identify and you can put in place to help make, make, make a decision. Okay. We don't, the constraint of, we're not going to hire somebody who's not the right fit. Who's not an A player. Um, that's a great constraint to have. It pushes you towards the temp agency option. Uh, it might also give you point you towards, okay, let's look at our current staff. Let's look at our current situation. What key leaders stand out? Who, who's developing in our organization that for a time we can shift responsibilities or add responsibilities to their plate, increase their responsibility, right? And, and mm-hmm. not reward high performers necessarily. Like that's a bad way to say it, but move somebody up in the organization who wants to, who show, who's showing that hunger and that desire. And then find maybe maybe their position is uh, there's more supply in the marketplace. There's more people with those skills and, and there's there's good A players with those skills that you can come in and quickly fill. That, that's, I, I think that's another option. But again, it depends on the constraints that you're facing. Um, and if you, I think, I think no matter what, the answer is not to just fill the position, right? So whether it's a temp agency or some other option that you have, um, the, the answer is not to just fill the seat with somebody that you're not quite sure of, that's not a good fit, that is maybe a C or D or, you know, B on the, the, I guess the job applicant scale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. So another tough question for you. What about when you want a players, but don't necessarily have the budget for them? Yeah, this is a, this is a great question. And we see this all the time. Um, and, and actually, it's something that I, we recommend to clients. If you are looking for, you should always be hiring, um, right? We say that and, and clients kind of sometimes give us the side eye and go, what, do you, what exactly do you mean by that? Um, and the answer is you're always looking for unicorns. You're always looking for the A players who are a good values fit. They fit with your culture. They have high technical competency. Um, they have high relational skills. You know, they, they at least know how to interact with people. Um, and they they kind of have the common signs of leadership. We we say you should hire you should find a position for them in your organization, and and the reason for that is because if they're truly an A player and we don't necessarily have the budget for them, we can probably set them up in a way unless it's like straight unless they're they're just a, a cost center, you know HR we often think about HR as like just the the cost center of the overhead department, right? So, so anything in overhead is just, it's stuff that we, we don't, we can't make any profit on. Um, unless it's purely that situation, then you, you, you should be able to find a way for this A player to pay for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we ran across this situation with a client um, who is, is trying to fill a position and they have two options. You know, they can fill it with a uh, more entry-level position uh, in the medical industry, like a CNA or a uh, medical aid or medical assistant, or they can fill it with an RN. And, you know, the, the question then became, what are the benefits of having an RN versus having a, a medical assistant? And the list just started going on. Well, an RN can do IVs, an RV, RN can do this, an RN can do this. And we quickly made the, you know, made the decision or encouraged them to make the decision. Like, absolutely. If you have to pay a little bit more and you don't, 
you don't necessarily you don't have the budget for it. Um, in fact, we're trying to you know maybe decrease overhead a little bit or or trying to adapt things here uh, to get more return on our overhead expense dollars. This is this is a great great deal. If you have to pay a little bit more, but they're able to. Uh, those are good payroll dollars or those are good overhead dollars in the sense that they're going to be able to make a return, then absolutely. I say go out and hire them if you don't have the budget, for, even if you don't have the budget for them. Because if they're a true A player, um, then they should be able to make a return yep. for, the, for the dollars that you pay them. Yeah, I agree 100%. All right, Cameron, what if we followed a process but still made a bad hiring decision? I would say get used to it. Um, it's inevitable. <laughs> I, the point of having a process is not to have, you know, this hundred percent foolproof. We'll never make a mistake again. It's just, that's, that is not likely it's not going to happen. Um, so if we don't have a process, you know, and, and if we look historically at our attention rates, we could figure out, okay, what, what percentage of hires are we getting right? And maybe that's been, around you know 75%. 75% of the time we've gotten hires right, but 25% of the time we haven't. So the goal is let's improve that. And by putting a process in place, we're going to improve that. Hopefully we can get closer to that 85, 90%, 95% um, retention. And so that's really what we're looking to do. Every now and then someone is going to be able to fake it, you know, in four different interviews, have a beautiful resume and set you up with a reference who thinks they're the best person ever. And they check that gut instinct likability box and they come in and then two months down the road, you're like, wow, this person isn't who I thought they were. Like they're not doing anything they said they would. And they're, you know, they're not likable. Like what happened there? And, and you just, you know, you just realize like, well, I got duped. I got fooled and it's going to happen. Like we're going to make some mistakes. I, I think I actually heard the CEO was, and I'm not saying I'm an advocate for this, but their motto with hiring was, hire slow and fire fast. <laughs> and so I think the truth that you can pull out of that is be very careful about your hiring decisions because it's going to make a huge impact on your company. And as soon as you realize that someone isn't a fit and they're being more detrimental to your company than helpful, then it's better to rip it off like a Band-Aid rather than to try to, you know, let's give this person another chance. Let's give this person another chance. And then you realize that, that you're, um, there's a huge cost to that in a lot of ways. And so, so yes, you will make mistakes, get used to that. But the point of the process is let's, let's at least make less mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no doubt. All right, cool. Next one for you, Devin, what if there's a split decision between the decision makers in a hiring decision? <laughs> a lot of decision there. Yeah. So much decision, right? Um, what what do you do? What a, what a great question, and what a like just how common that is when you have two people with two different minds who are are unique and, and beautifully and fearfully and wonderfully made um, have different opinions. Uh, that never happens ever, <laughs> right? No, it's it's common, right? We we have the same same thing happen when in our home in our lives. Like if we if you're married, you've had a decision to make where you and your wife are not on the same page. Um, and what do you do in those situations? And I think context is super important here. Um, you know, and, and the, the reasons for why the split decision is, is absolutely important. Um, so what I say, what I mean when I say that, let's, let's uh, 
client situation, uh, two partners in the business, and there's a there's a potential hire on the table. One one partner thinks they're great. They you know they have the likability factor. Their their resume looks good. They they're competent. They they have the necessary skills. They took intelligence and aptitude tests, and they they fit in within our organization. What we you know the capacity and the level at which we need them to think. Um, and, and yet one one partner is you know does, does, isn't quite sure. The gut instinct is not there. It, they're not a culture fit. Let's just say that's the reason. They they I I saw some things in the interview. I, I took them out to lunch and saw the way that they treated the the waitress um, and saw the way that they treated the hostess. And I just they're they're really great. They're not a bad person, but just the way that they treat people they think are are in a, a position lesser than them. I wasn't quite on board with that. Mm-hmm. Right. I would say anytime it's a values, like if that's a, if that's a situation, that's a values conversation, that's a culture fit issue. Um, pull them, pull them in, pull another interviewer in, you know, mm-hmm. get somebody else to, to bring fresh eyes to the situation. And the reason I say that is because you may be just falling victim to the common, a really common, like, um, you may be falling into just the, the, the common first impression bias, yeah. um, right? We, we all have like, it takes 10 seconds to form a first impression, right? There's a, one of the most fascinating uh, pieces of research that I read when I was in college was this study that they took on college students uh, for a semester. They put the teacher in the classroom and the students didn't know they were gonna be participating in the study. They, the teacher went into the classroom, introduced herself, and 10 seconds later, they gave the, the students a survey and asked the students, hey, like, what, what do you think about this teacher? What are your first impressions? And, uh, you know, took, collected the data. They continued the semester. At the end of the semester, you know, it's like 13, it's like one class a week, maybe 13. Maybe, maybe they meet multiple times a week. I don't know. But it was, let's say it was 13 weeks. They took a survey after the class at the end of the course and ask students what their, if their impression of the teacher changed. An overwhelming majority of the students had no change in their impression of the teacher. Mm. So the researcher's question was like, wow, this is really interesting. They've spent 13 weeks with this professor. What, how long does it take to change a first impression? And the researchers found that on average, it takes 27 new first impressions Right, new interactions with this person in order to change a first impression. So I think that's important. You know, that that piece of knowledge is really important. One, like we we always hear when we don't when we were growing up, don't judge a book by its cover, mm-hmm. right? But that's that's hard to do. In fact, the mom and dad should tell you. And if you do happen to judge a book by its cover, make sure you at least spend twenty seven more. You know, get together with them twenty seven more times to to get to really get to know them because you might mm-hmm. be wrong, right? And um, so I think in that situation, if it's a culture fit issue, um, probably best if you bring somebody else in and maybe own up to the fact that I, I may have, I may be viewing this person in a bad light. Um, so again, context is important. The other thing I'll, I'll add to this though, is the reason for bringing in a second opinion is not necessarily to say I'm wrong, but to maybe make sure that you're united with your partner. Right. If there's two decision makers and maybe it's not a partner, maybe it's just managers, executives, but you're not united on a decision. Right. Uh, there, there's a great book and there's there's a really wonderful 
teaching in it that says a house divided against itself will not stand. It will fall. Right. And so if we are not united as leaders and we're not on board and we're not both united in this, in, in hiring an individual and making sure we're both invested in their future and their success, then it's probably best if we don't make the decision for that individual. You know, again, super important context is super important than that. You want to make sure that if one decision maker is maybe making unhealthy decisions or, or thinking about this in an unhealthy way, you confront those. You might have to have some difficult, you know, internal conversations. Um, but at the end of the day, split, if there's a split decision, if at all possible, be united. Um, and it might, you know, might mean one of one of the decision makers needs to concede. Yeah, that's a great point. What about you? Any any additional thoughts on that? I, I was long winded in my yeah. answer, but no, I I mean I think you hit the nail on the head. I don't have much to add to it. I have seen a situation where there's been two people in the hiring decision. One one wants to hire, one doesn't, and it's happened twice in one of the companies we work with, and in both times the person who wanted to hire conceded to the person who didn't. And the reason was um, the person who, who wanted to hire realized that the person who didn't was going to be working more directly with the person. And if, it, if, if that other person wasn't excited about working with this applicant, then he, you know, the, he realized like it's probably not going to be a good fit. And so he put more weight on the other person's decision than on his own. I thought it was, a, I thought it was very humble of him. And I think mm-hmm. he did the right thing in that situation. I agree with you. It would have been better like, hey, let's bring in a third party. Um, let's see, let's get their opinion. But in, in the situation, I think the person conceding made the right decision because of the relationship dynamic that was going to be between the applicant and the other person. So, yeah. Yeah, great, great, wise decision there. All right. Uh, Cameron, next question is for you. Is it a good idea to hire friends and relatives? Like if you're the if you're the business owner or maybe you're the manager, the hiring manager. Mm-hmm. The question is, is it a good idea to hire friends, relatives of yourself or your employees? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. I mean, we've all seen it work out really well. We've all seen it work out really bad. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about the show The Office on here, but <laughs> favorite <laughs> show of all time. And one of my, you know, just classic great episode is when Michael Scott hires his nephew to come in and do some work, 17 years old. And the kid is just absolutely terrible. And he's just causing havoc. He's ruining the culture. All the employees hate him. And it just turns into a complete disaster. Michael Scott gets disciplined by HR for spanking his nephew in the office. And so I think that that happens a lot of times is we have a business owner who's like, oh, I have a nephew who needs a summer job. Let's just get him in here and let's just give him some work to do. And that, you know, they end up causing a ton of issues. I think it is completely fine and okay to hire friends and relatives if it doesn't go against, you know, a company policy if they go through the same process as everybody else. And that's the key. You can't just let's let's hire them let's give them a job because they are a friend and relative they have to go through the same process and check all the same boxes as anybody else and as long as they do that then yes go ahead move forward with them it, it you know it's okay to do that but don't just don't just do it because they're a friend and relative yeah yeah and i and just a huge kudos uh, to one of our clients yoder homes and remodeling where they came across they they went through this exact process and almost like to a T the office scenario. Um, 
the business owner had two nephews who were looking for their twins. They were looking for a summer job and they, he, he wanted to hire his nephews, but he made them go through the same exact hiring process. He didn't interview them mm-hmm. and they ended up needing the help. They could use the construction assistance and project project management assistance. And so they hired them. And, and it, so it wasn't just that, like, I think, I think kind of the, I'll, I'll back up here a little bit. The reason I think it's an, it's a good idea is when there's a value fit, right? Our, like we love family businesses and yeah. if it's, if it's your son or daughter, like they don't just get a position in the business because it's their last name, right? right. Because they share your last name. That is a, a surefire way to undo and undermine any sort of cultural foundation that you've laid. If your son or daughter just is of age now and now they're in the business and then now they're a leader in the business and they don't know anything about how operations work uh, and, and they just they're there because they have the same last name as you. But that's yeah. just not a good idea. Absolutely. Everybody knows when they're there. They should what, what your people should be able to stand firm on is this person is going to work just like everybody else works. They're going to get promoted just like everybody else gets promoted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a given that they're probably, if they're invested in the business, they're on a fast track to leadership and they're on a fast track probably to ownership one day, and they're, but they're going to have to put in the work for it. And if, if you, as a business owner, if you don't make them put in the work and get them a feel for the entire operations, you're doing them a disservice. So I digress there. I digress from that and just say, Denny did a great job because he, do, he was not in the hiring process. He relied on his operations manager to hire, hire them and make the decision train them up, work with them, and even be their direct report, right? He, they don't go to Denny because he's not their boss. Mm-hmm. He, he's ultimately easy to owner of the company, but he doesn't have any say over what they do and don't do on, on a day-to-day basis. And if they have issues, then he's not disciplining them. He's got people in his organization who he trusts and he values their opinion to, to educate and train and equip and grow leaders, right? Um, so it's, it's a really, it was a really just a highlight moment for us to just encourage them and say, this is, that's great. Um, because we've seen it work out poorly on the other side where we bring in a, a son or a daughter who's, we, we want them to have the business. We're not quite sure that whether that or not they want the business and we, you see them fast track the leadership. And then it, what ends up happening is, you know, other, other resentment from employees turnover because you know, for any, any number of reasons. So, so definitely, I think it's a good idea if you have family or friends uh, who want to be in the business and even of your employees, huge advocate for, you know, recommending and, and Hey, if your friend, if your friends or relatives come to work for us, not certain situations, nepotism, again, policy should be in place to kind of don't just have no guardrails, but um, I know where my wife, the Sarasota Memorial, they have a refer refer bonus, referral bonus. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to find people who are a good culture fit. Yeah. Um, and, and I think just if, if the if person A likes to work there and they have a friend, we tend to hang out with people that we're like. And person B wants to work here and is going to apply and they are similar to person A, they're probably going to be a good culture fit, a good fit for our, the organization. So I um, think it's a good idea. But to Cameron, I love that point. Do not go through. Do not, don't fast track them. They go through the same process as everybody else, uh, the same hiring process as everyone else. 
Yeah, I think it's also important. Last thing I'll add to that question is, if it is a, if if you're the CEO um, or or the one making the recommendation for the hire, and it is a relative, make sure to let the people know who are involved in the hiring decision that it will not come back to haunt them if they vote no. Like you, you have to give those people complete permission not to move forward with, you know, or to speak their mind if they feel like you shouldn't move forward in the hiring decision. Because the last thing you want is uh, is going through the process, but everybody feeling like you're just going through the process to say you did, when in reality, like the decision was made well before. So, you know, make sure there's complete transparency around the leadership table in those decisions. So last question, Devin, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, this is a big one that I run into um, pretty frequently with clients where they're just, they're asking, is it a good idea to work with recruiters? And just to add that, what are some pros and cons with working with recruiters? Yeah, I think it, I think it depends. Um, again, I, I hate to like, I hate that that's the typical answer, but uh, we, we've worked with recruiters in the past uh, as clients and they, they recruit and hire and do executive selections for C-suite executives and upper level management. Um, and, and they go through a three month process to make sure, not, now this isn't every recruiter, but the one that we've worked with goes through a three month process to make sure that they have the character, to make sure that they're a culture fit, to make sure that they have the technical competencies, to make sure that they're just, they're, they're who are, they are who they say they are. Um, and that's important for those upper, if you have to use a recruiter for an executive level position, um, it's probably a good idea to let them go through the legwork and save yourself all of that time. You're, you're not going to, I mean, most of the business, at least in our world, most of the businesses that we work with, they, they don't have that, that detailed of a process in order mm-hmm. to, to cross-reference, character reference, uh, aptitude test. And so they work with a recruiter who's going to run through that with the the potential selection, um, and, and to make sure it's a good fit. So I think it. I think in some in that context, absolutely. I think it's a great idea. It's it's a wise way to spend overhead dollars. It's a wise spending decision to make sure that we're not going to hire a, and make a bad decision. Um, I would say in other cases, you know, one of one we actually talked about this in a previous episode, where if at all possible. Um, your your HR department should handle this responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. And and we say in the episode, I don't remember what episode it is. We'll put that in the show notes. But we we kind of make the comparison between uh, someone who is a strategic HR director versus an administrative HR director, and the, those two kind of descriptions are are telling of the direction we went with each. Administrative HR. We want to make sure that all the employees have all the proper records, that they're compliant, that they have all the safety and training that they need, that they have employee badges with their names on them, that their address is correct. They know when open enrollment is so they can get all their, make sure all their insurance is up to date. And it's, it's just very checking T, you know, crossing T's and dotting I's. Somebody who's very administrative. We recommend, like our, our at, we advocate for Getting a one-page plan, getting your vision, your mission, and your goals and your strategies in front of your HR professional so that they can start proactively looking for those hires, right? We Mm -hmm. said it in a previous answer to a question, you should always be looking for A players. You should always be hiring. When you equip your HR director or your hiring professionals with this plan that says, hey, this is where we want to go, 
this is this is how we see getting there. We need you to start looking for people that are going to get help get us there. Um, make make recruiting an internal, you know, and we didn't talk about it in this episode, but make recruiting an internal competency of your HR department. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, yeah, some just to mention some cons. I mean, I think it's good to be aware that if you work with a recruiter, more than likely you're going to be paying 20 to 30 percent of the mm-hmm. annual salary that you're paying uh, the person that they send over. So there can be a, a significant cost to it. Obviously, there's a lot of benefits that come with it, though. You're not, you know, you're you're paying for a service. Um, so that that's one. In the situations that I've helped out at where we've worked with recruiters, there's been more pros than cons. I mean, the the main con is the cost. Uh, But, you know, one of the pros is they they typically do give you a 60 to 90 day kind of evaluation period where if, you know, if it doesn't work out in those 60 to 90 days, you're not paying that 25% or whatever it may be. One kind of side note I'll make to that is it is a terrible practice. If you get somebody in the door, you have a 90 day evaluation period, let's say day 45, day 50, you realize they're not a fit, but you decide, Hey, let's get 89 days out of them before we let them know. And right before that 90 day period, you, you tell them it's not going to work. You go to the recruiter and say, Hey, it's, you know, it's not a fit still in the 90 days. I don't want to pay you the 25%. Like that I I've, I've seen CEOs have that mindset of let's let's get as much as we can out of a person. That is a terrible practice. You will lose the trust of recruiters. Recruiters won't want to work with you. Word spreads quickly. So stay away from that. Um, but I, I do I do like when you're uh, considering working with a recruiter, you almost interview that person, have a conversation with that person to make sure it's a good fit for you, to make sure they understand your needs, what you're looking for. Um, you know, what the position entails, just you want a recruiter that that can almost get into your mind of what is most important to you. So that when they're sending candidates over to you, it's not just, uh, you know, hey, let's throw let's throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. It's it's hey, I know this this uh, CEO, this owner so well that I know this person would not fit. So I'm not even going to bother in sending them over to them. I'm just going to send these couple. So yes, it can, like you said, be an extremely good practice to work with a recruiter. Just make sure that you have a good relationship with the recruiter and they fully understand what you're looking for and make sure you're aware of the cost that goes into it. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great additions. Anything else, Cameron, on your end for final thoughts as we wrap up this episode on hiring? No, that's it. Hopefully that was helpful. Those uh, were some tough questions that we have to answer pretty regularly. And, and, uh, and so, you know, they're not, they're not easy. And like we said, a lot of them are contextual, just depends on the situation. But um, I think as we're in a very thin labor market right now, the hiring conversation is just of utmost importance. And hopefully, you know, we'll get to a place in the market where we'll have more options to hire, especially in some of these, you know, maybe lower um, or entry level positions. But um, yeah, thanks for taking time just to listen. Hopefully this was helpful. Yep. Thank you, everyone. We'll uh, talk to you next week.